0: Praise team. They're, they're truly amazing. I'm, I'm so thankful every time I get to hear them uh, lead us in worship. And uh, they put in a lot of time that a lot of people don't see, and they, that was a wonderful job this morning. Back in 1985, there was a band called Tears for Fears. Here's a picture of them up on the screen here. Anybody remember them? Raise your hand, just be honest. Anybody remember this band? Now, now, B, I want you to be completely honest. Anybody have an old Tears for Fears album or a concert, T-shirt, or poster? Anybody? No? You wouldn't admit it if you did, right? Yeah. But even if you're not a diehard Tears for Fears fan, This is, uh, I think many remember one song that they sung in particular. Check out this clip. Listen to this here. I know some of you know the song that's right you can't hide it I saw some lips moving and some 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 voices out there yeah yeah this is probably their most well-known song everybody wants to rule the world and though I think this is a a bit exaggerated I do think there's a lot of truth to that title don't you I think deep down if we're honest We would admit that we want to be the ruler, at least, over our own world. I think deep down, many of us, most of us, want to be the king of our own life. We want to be our own authority. Where does this come from? Is this something new? Something that's just developed over the past few generations? No. This has been a a desire of ours since the beginning, hasn't it? We can trace this all the way back to the first book of the Bible, chapter 3. You remember the story, right? God creates man and woman and places them in a garden paradise and gives them authority to rule over his world and gives them free reign in his garden, but he gives them one rule. He says, you have one rule and it's this, you cannot eat of this tree. See, early on, God was teaching us that we are to be under authority. Though God has given us authority over the earth, he lets us know from the start that we are to live under his authority. Well, you remember what happened a little later in the story, right? Man chose to reject God's rule He chose to rebel against God and to go at life on his own. Man basically said, I want to be the king. I want to be the king over my world. I don't want to answer to God. I don't want to do what he tells me to do. I don't want him as my king. I want to call the shots. I want to rule over my world. So man did not like God's rule and he rejected God's authority and we all know what happened as a result, right? As a result, sin enters into the world. And as a result of sin, death enters in as well, and the world becomes chaotic. And this picture-perfect life with God is shattered. Though God created everything right and good, sin comes in, and it ruins and wrecks God's perfect world. And God could have left it that way, couldn't He? He could have. He could have said, I've had it with man, and could have wiped his hands of the whole thing. But instead, we see as early as chapter 3 of the first book of the Bible, God committing himself to this broken world. Though he could have left this world, and more importantly us, in this broken and fallen state, instead, he chose to step in and restore and redeem it, and he chose to reach out to us again. And accomplish his salvation for us so that we might be made right with him. And we see this shortly after the fall. We see this commitment. We see this promise that God makes to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. He he makes a promise that he will provide a king. He says, I am going to send you a king and he is going to come and restore and redeem this broken and fallen world well in our text for today we're going to discover that Jesus is that King if you have your Bibles turn to John chapter 12 this morning we're gonna be looking at verses 12 through 26 today is a special day it is Palm Sunday and For those of you all who don't know, this is the day when we remember Jesus' entry into Jerusalem shortly before his arrest and crucifixion. So I thought it fitting this morning to preach about this triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem from John 12. When thinking about this event, I'm sure that there are several things that come to your mind. For example, some of you think of Jesus riding in on a donkey. Some of you picture people coming out with palm branches and and crying out Hosanna, which we've been singing about this morning. And though these details are true to the story, and we're going to talk about that this morning, I'm also going to focus on, from this text, one key thing in particular that that we don't often think about and discuss when, when we're looking at this event, but we should. It's an inescapable teaching in this text. The triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem clearly shows us that Jesus is the King. He is the King. And when thinking about this event in Scripture, when thinking about Palm Sunday, what should come to your mind is the fact that Jesus is King. And not just any King, but the King of Kings. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to show you from this passage that Jesus is the king. And I also want you to consider this. I want you to consider, because he is the king, what should the proper response be? What should our response to him be because Jesus is the king? From this text, we're going to look at... Three responses to Jesus as king. And we're going to look at, one, what what Jesus had to say about it. We're going to look at the response of the eyewitnesses in Jesus' day. And then we're going to end by discussing what our response should be as well. First, let's look at Jesus' response. Jesus' response. Look at John chapter 12, verses 12 through 15. John writes, Here's what's going on here. There is a large crowd in Jerusalem because it's Passover. And many of you already know Passover is a big deal to the Jewish people, right? And it was an, it was an annual celebration remembering the work that God had done in delivering them from Egyptian bondage. So they, they celebrated it every year. And in that day, in the first century, during Passover, Jerusalem would just be packed with devout Jews. A Jewish historian reported that at one Passover during the first century, uh, there were close to three million Jews in Jerusalem. So there are a lot of people here. And during this particular Passover, you get this sense that there's a lot of buzz in the air about this Jesus. And one of the main reasons why is because he has just raised Lazarus from the dead. And this took place in Bethany, which was about two miles away from Jerusalem. So there is a lot of excitement in the air. And when Jesus comes to town, the people go crazy for him. They come out of their homes and they meet him and they do two things in particular. First, they bring palm branches and they lay them at Jesus' feet. Now, this was customary to do if you had a hero coming into town. This was customary to do when welcoming a military general or a great national leader. And you'll understand in a few moments why they gave Jesus this type of welcome, okay? But they, they, they go out with palm branches and they lay them down at Jesus' feet and they cry out to the Lord, verse 13, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, That word Hosanna is often used as a a greeting and and it means, you know, God bless you or God keep you. So it's a sign of greeting, but it literally means save us now, save now. Then they follow with blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a reference to Psalm 118. And by quoting this psalm, the crowd is acknowledging that Jesus is someone special, someone who comes from God. And then they say, even the king of Israel, or another way of saying that is, namely the king of Israel. So when you put all that together, what the crowd is basically saying is this, here comes the king sent by God to save us right now. Well, how does Jesus respond? to these claims they're making the statement you are the king who comes from god to save us how does jesus respond he accepted it jesus response is he accepted it now this is interesting that he accepts his title because several chapters back in john chapter 6 we see jesus avoid this title don't we After he miraculously feeds 5,000, John tells us in verse 15 of chapter 6, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So in chapter 6, they wanted to take him and make him king and Jesus walks away from that kind of recognition. But here in John 12, he accepts it. He welcomes it. He embraces it. What has changed? from John 6 to John 12? Well, the answer is simple. Timing. In John 6, it was not yet time. The hour had not yet come, but in, but in John 12, the hour is at hand. It's time for Jesus to be recognized as king. And let me show you in this text, How Jesus shows that he welcomes this this claim here. Let me show you how Jesus welcomes this title as king. Look again at verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So the crowd is essentially saying to Jesus, We believe that you've come. In the name of the Lord, to save us. We believe you're the king. And how does Jesus respond? In response, he goes and he gets a donkey and rides it into town. Now, let's be honest. That's a little strange, isn't it? Isn't that strange? I mean, if you're going to ride through a town where people are going to recognize you as king, would you ride on a donkey? I think not, right? I mean, there's there's nothing impressive or regal about riding on a donkey, is there? You'd be saying, go get me secretariat, right? Go get me secretariat's son, or go get me the black stallion, you know? To to look impressive as king. But Jesus chooses to ride in on a donkey. Why does he do that? Well, John tells us at the end of verse 14, he says, as it is written. Now, whenever a New Testament writer says that, as it is written, what they're doing is they're making a reference to an Old Testament passage. And and that's what John is doing here. In verse 15, he quotes Zechariah 9.9. And to save you from having to flip back there, here it is up on the screen, okay? Now, keep this in mind. This is the Old Testament. This is written hundreds of years before this event is recorded in John chapter 12 and before this event took place. Zechariah the prophet says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, hundreds of years prior to John 12, the prophet Zechariah prophesied of the, the that the king of Israel is going to come. And he's not going to come proudly. But he is going to come in humility, riding on a donkey. He's not going to come to bring war, but peace. He's not going to come to punish, but he's coming to save. So let me ask you this. Do you think that Jesus, when he goes and gets this donkey, do you think he knows about Zechariah 9-9? Yeah, you bet he does. You bet he does. And when he finds this donkey... And rides it into town. What this is doing is he is claiming to be king. He is looking back at Zechariah 9.9 and he's saying, this is me. I am he. I am your king. Righteous and having salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey. He is accepting the praise from the crowd and is essentially saying, you guys are right. The claims that you're making about me and about how I'm the king and about how I'm coming to save is correct. So Jesus is fulfilling Zechariah nine nine, and he's showing that he accepts this claim that he is the king. And I hope you see here this morning that Jesus openly accepts this title as king. And this is not the only evidence we have either, is it? In Luke's account, Luke records... Uh, dialogue that takes place between Jesus and the Pharisees. It's in Luke chapter 19, verse 39. You don't have to flip there unless you're quick. You can write it down, Luke 19, 39. Luke writes this, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He, Jesus, answered and said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You see what's happening here? This is Luke's account of the same event. And while Jesus is riding through town and people are saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Some of the Pharisees turn to Jesus and they say, hey Jesus, you need to set these guys straight. You need to set your your followers straight because they're calling you the king. And look at how Jesus responds. He says, I tell you, even if they are silent, even if they didn't cry out, that I'm the king who's coming to save, he says, I tell you, the very stones would cry out. What Jesus is saying here is, even if no one recognizes that I'm the king, doesn't change the fact that I am. He says, even if they do not, I am still. And even if they will not, all of creation will. Jesus is clearly making the point, he is the king. And not just the king of Israel, though he is, but he's the king of kings, the Lord of all creation. So once again, it's clear here. Jesus accepts this title. Now let's look at the people's response. When Jesus accepts this title as king, how do those watching, how do the eyewitnesses respond? Well, there are actually three different responses that we're going to look at in this text. The first is this, some rejected it. Some rejected it. There were some who already had their mind made up about Jesus before this event. And uh, when he comes riding into town in this way, accepting these claims, this just added fuel to their fire. We we saw this a bit in Luke's account where the Pharisees turned to Jesus and like, hey, you got to set these guys straight. They're calling you king. And we also see this here in John's account in verse 19. John records, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are, ga- you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after them. Has gone after him. We, we see here in verse 19, the Pharisees are clearly not happy about what has taken place in Jerusalem, are they? In the first half of the book of John, we learn that they did all in their power to have Jesus arrested. And time and time again, they were not successful. And... After all these failed attempts, we see here in verse 19 that the, that the Pharisees are clearly put out. They, they basically say here, we're gaining nothing. In other words, we failed time and time again. We have failed to stop him, and look, now the whole world has gone after him. Now, they're exaggerating a bit, right? They didn't mean the whole world because they were not following. But they're seriously frustrated. Ever have a plan in place? You try to execute that plan, and you just fail to execute it time and time again. It finally just leaves you frustrated, and you just throw your hands up, and like, you just say, I'm wasting my time here. Nothing's working. That's the frustration the Pharisees felt at this moment. So some rejected these claims about Christ and were opposed to Him. And this is true in the first century, and this is true today, isn't it? There are many in our world today, like many in the the first century, who reject Christ as king and view him and his followers as more of a nuisance than anything else. Some believe that Christianity is what's wrong with the world rather than being what the world needs most. So some reject him. Number two, some are confused by it. We see this on the part of the disciples, don't we? Look at verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. You see, at first, his disciples didn't understand why Jesus was doing what he was doing and why he was saying what he was saying. And and it's easy for us to be critical, right? Because we have the whole story. But when you put yourself in their shoes, you can understand their, their, their confusion. Think about it. You have all these people gathered, ready to worship Jesus and ready to make him king. And Jesus goes and he gets a donkey. And you got to think they were thinking to themselves, donkey? Really? I mean, they were expecting him to ride into Jerusalem, mounted up on a stallion and armed in in armor, ready for war. They were were looking to him to be this, this powerful, victorious king. And he rides in humbly as a lowly servant on a donkey. They didn't get it. This is nothing new for the disciples, is it? They were confused a lot during Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, understanding would come later, but at first, they didn't get it. How true is that for each one of us? You know, oftentimes we don't know what God is up to in our life until we look back at the events and how they've unfolded to get us to where we are, that we truly see it, right? Any of you, have, if you've been walking with Jesus for any length of time, you know that a lot of times clarity comes after and not before, right? And that was the case with the disciples. They didn't get it either. So uh, they were confused. The third response is this. Some misunderstood it. Though many expressed a willingness to follow Jesus when he came riding into Jerusalem, many of these followers followed Jesus for the wrong reasons because they misunderstood who he truly was and what he was coming to do. Look at verses 17 and 18. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. So there is this large crowd following Jesus. And the reason why is because he's just raised someone from the dead. Well, guess what? My guess is if you or me raise someone from the dead in front of a bunch of witnesses, they'd probably follow us around too, wouldn't they? Yeah, makes sense. Same is true here, but we find as the story goes on that they were not really following Jesus for the right reasons They were only superficially following him and you know how I know this It's because later in this book We're told that the same crowd that was shouting loud Hosanna as Jesus comes into Jerusalem was the same crowd that were yelling crucify him as he stood before Pilate the same crowd that rushed into the streets with palm branches and said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, was the same crowd who were cheering on those who were beating our Lord and sending Him away to be crucified. Same crowd. Remember, they had a choice. They could either release Jesus or a hardened criminal. And they chose to release Barabbas. Why? What happened? Why the change from praise to rebuke, from acceptance to rejection? because they misunderstood Jesus and as a result, they wanted nothing more to do with him. See, at first they wanted Jesus to be their king. They claimed they wanted him to come. They wanted to be delivered. They wanted to be free. But the kind of freedom and deliverance Jesus offered was not the kind they were looking for. You see, at this time, the Jewish people were being oppressed, politically and and physically in every way. So they were looking for a powerful, victorious, miracle-working Messiah who was going to come and set up shop and be large and in charge, who was going to come and establish this visible and physical rule here on earth. They were looking for a Messiah who was going to come right here and right now and make life good for them and make life easy for them. That's what they wanted. Believers, not a lot has changed, has it? hasn't we see this type of mentality today many are happy to welcome jesus into their world as long as he doesn't mess up their plans too much as long as he furthers our agenda as long as he makes our life better right here right now in an immediate in physical way and when he doesn't we like those in jesus's day we turn away from him So the perspective of those in Jesus' day was rejection, confusion, and misunderstanding. So we've looked at Jesus' response and we've looked at the response of those eyewitnesses. Now let's end by, by discussing what our response should be scripturally. Our response should be this. When it comes to the teachings that Jesus is king, we are to embrace it. We are to embrace it. This is the proper response biblically. Now let me take a few moments to discuss what this looks like and then I want to give you several benefits for following that come from following Christ as King. In in verse 20, there were a group of Greeks who wanted to see Jesus and I believe they wanted to get close to Him to see what He was all about. Well, in the following verses, Jesus makes this known. Look at verse 24. Jesus says, Most assuredly I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Here Jesus gives an illustration. He says, for a grain of wheat to be fruitful, it must fall to the ground and die. Otherwise, it's worthless. It has to die to be Now, though he is somewhat talking about himself here in this passage, it's also clear as we continue reading that Jesus also has his followers in mind as well. Jesus is saying, if you want to embrace me as king, if you want to truly follow me and live an abundant and fruitful life, you have to die. We just sang about this earlier, didn't we? The wondrous cross bids me come and die to find that I might truly live. Believers, this is to be our response. If we want to live an abundant and joyful life, a life that honors God, we must follow Christ as king. And in order to follow Christ as king, we must die to ourselves. In verse 25, Jesus goes a bit further to say, he who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it. For eternal life. Jesus is saying, You cannot love your life if you want to follow me. You have to hate it. Now, some said in that day, and some say today, You know, hate my life? What do you mean I have to hate my life? What he's saying here is this each and every one of us naturally love our lives. We do. We are the center of our world, we are the king of our own life. That's what Jesus means when he says, love your life. He means you are your own authority. Now, when Jesus talks about hating your life, he does not literally mean that we have to hate ourselves. What he's saying here is for you to truly live, there has to be something you love more than your own life, namely him, namely Christ. So Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, You have to die to yourself. You have to hate your own life. And that word hate just means to love less. Christ is saying, your love for me, your desire to follow me should be so strong that all other demonstrations of love in your life should look like hate in comparison to the way you love me. That's what Christ is saying. Let's be honest, that's pretty radical, isn't it? It is. It its You might be even thinking along the same lines as the crowd that turned against Jesus. You may be thinking, well, if that's what it takes, why do it? If following Christ involves me dying to my desires, if it involves me hating my own life, then why even mess with it? Why do it? I'll tell you why. There are several reasons, several benefits given here in the passage that come from following Christ as king. Look at these with me benefits to following Christ as king, number one, you bear fruit. We've talked about this a bit already. But in verse 24, Jesus is clear that to be fruitful, we have to be willing to die to ourselves. And who is a better example than the Lord Jesus, right? He is our perfect example of this. Think about all the fruit that resulted from Jesus laying down his life for us. It's amazing when you think about it, isn't it? Another great example are the the apostles. Think about the ministry of the apostles. They forsook all and followed Christ, and what resulted was the spread of the gospel across the known world. We have the gospel today because of the foundation laid by the apostles. You bear fruit. Fruit comes as a result of following Christ as king, but there's more. You get life. This is one of the great paradoxes in the Christian faith. Look at verse 25. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus says, if you love your life more than anything else and live for yourself, guess what? You're going to lose your life. But he says, if you say to yourself, I'm going to die to myself, I'm going to make Jesus my authority and I'm going to put him first. You know what ends up happening? You get life. And not just any life, but a but an eternal, abundant, fruitful and full life in Christ. Listen, I want you to get this. This is very important truth from the scriptures. What we lay down for Christ here on this earth, he will put All that and more back in our hands in the life to come. Now, I'm not talking about fancy cars and anything. We won't even be concerned about that kind of stuff. I'm talking about heavenly treasures. That's true, that's biblical. Listen to the way David Fairchild puts it. I I love this quote. You cannot out-sacrifice God's resurrection generosity. Don't you love that? You cannot outsacrifice God's resurrection generosity. It doesn't matter how much you sacrifice here on this earth. You can lay it all down. And God is going to be a million times more generous in the life to come. It should be motivation for us here in this life. So you bear fruit. You get life. And lastly, you gain honor. There is honor in following Jesus as king. Look at verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You know, I, I believe we often hold back when it comes to following Christ as king because we want earthly honor and praise. And we know that we might have to sacrifice some of that if we give too much of ourselves to Christ. Even though we may not voice it, I I, I know it to be true in many cases. Believers, believe me when I say that all human honor is nothing. It, It pales in comparison to the eternal honor that God will give those who love and serve His Son. It's true. Let me end with this. Maybe you're here this morning. Up to this point in your life, you can honestly say that Christ is not Lord of your life. You can honestly sit here and say, Jesus is not the king and I'm not following him as king. But maybe now more than ever before, you're you're convinced that Jesus is Lord of all and that he should be the Lord over your life. I pray that if you're in that boat this morning, if this is you, that you would humble yourself right here and right now, that you would turn from your sin, that you would trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Listen, these benefits that I shared with you just a moment ago, they can be enjoyed by you this very day, and you can come to know what it means to experience an eternal, abundant, fruitful full life in Christ if you will follow Him as King. Would you pray with me?